Hello, and thank you for tuning in again. I'm your host, Josh Gorell, and this is the fourth episode of Third Party Radio. since my last podcast. I was attempting to do a once a week format. Uh, It became rather difficult uh, because of other stuff that I needed to do. But I'm back. Uh, My uh, hope is to achieve a twice monthly podcast and bring you uh, better content and uh, make it an even more enjoyable experience. For this episode, I, uh, I changed up a little bit. I was uh, looking through the news one day and found the diaries of the climate activist Greta Thunberg, uh, who obviously everybody knows about. Um, I hadn't specifically followed her in detail during her experience of uh, taking a leave of absence at school for a year sailing across the Atlantic and going on uh, a global speaking tour. Um, But when I read the diaries uh, that she wrote that Time Magazine released, I was just in awe in so many ways um, of her her maturity, uh, her knowledge, and just her, you know, overall just, for lack of a better word, awesomeness. And also I was in awe that, as she explains herself in so many ways, just how incredibly sad it is that a 17-year-old girl has to go on a global tour to tell us (laughs) that we're destroying our our Earth. Um, So incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful words uh, in this diary. And as I read it, I thought to myself, I'm just going to read this diary. I'm just going to read her words because, you know, we are in a pandemic and and, and in a fight for our lives, both figuratively and literally and economically. And we're not really handling the crisis of this pandemic, specifically in America, which is the biggest problem in both global warming and now the coronavirus pandemic. And so... I'm just thinking to myself, this needs to be, I just need to read this. I just need to read it to you guys. Now, of course, there's a big problem in that uh, that I caught right away. Um, I'm a man, and I don't think a man should be reading uh, a female diary. It's just poor judgment. So I was about to do this. Uh, anyway, because of course we got to just kind of do everything ourselves these days, as I have been. And uh, luckily, a very, very, very wonderful lady reached out to me randomly in an email on the morning I was going to start to record the diaries. Uh, this person, uh, her name is Kaylee Gibson. Um, I had recognized her voice. Uh, I overheard her voice in a phone call on a speakerphone one day while she was talking to my roommate. And I told her that she has a million dollar voice. 
And so in this email, she was uh, inquiring about how she could use that million dollar voice and some uh, information on certain audio uh, um, platforms that, that do voiceover work for uh, books on tape and commercials and other things. And it just clicked in a second. I said, you know, call me. And she did. And I said, would you want to start this career by reading Greta Thunberg's diaries for my next podcast? And she agreed to do this. It was amazing. It came out amazing. Um, you're about to hear this. Uh, she's got a great voice. She's a wonderful personality. Uh, Kaylee Gibson. Uh, I'm going to turn the show entirely over to her and Greta Thunberg. Uh, but before I do that, though, I do want to preference that global warming is even more of a crucial issue than the coronavirus, and it needs to be handled like a crisis. Um, you know, here in Los Angeles, or California, I should say, uh, in the last hundred years, the sea rose less than nine inches in California. By the end of this century, the surge could be greater than nine feet. Okay, 42,000 homes will be estimated underwater as well as the world famous Venice Beach Boardwalk in Los Angeles. That's right, underwater. And by the way, uh, Southern California has at current lost two thirds of its beaches to rising sea levels. Uh, so it's pretty serious. And then, of course, going back to my favorite pet peeve, the gas-powered leaf blower. Uh, I have to laugh at uh, all the people in the Los Feliz Hills uh, who drive electric cars and then clean their yards with gasoline. If you can't stop cleaning your yard with gasoline, then there is literally no hope to reverse climate change. And on that note, I'm turning it over to Kaylee Gibson, reading Greta Thunberg's diaries. Enjoy. Chapter one, UN speech in New York. The first thing I see when I enter the United Nations headquarters building in New York City is Roxy, my dog. The two of us are projected onto a large screen, which apparently is part of an international art exhibition. When I see her brown Labrador eyes, it almost feels as if she was right here with me. Suddenly, I'm reminded of how much I miss her. Today is September 23rd, 2019, and it's now been seven weeks since I boarded the train in Stockholm and began my journey. I have no clue of how and when I'm going to get back home. Three weeks have passed since the boat Malizia sailed into New York City's harbor and left the peaceful, constrained life on the ocean. After 14 days at sea, we sailed past the Statue of Liberty, stepped ashore in Manhattan, and took the red subway line uptown towards Central Park. My sea legs were shaking and all the impressions from people, scents, and noises became almost impossible to take in. The time in New York has been surreal. 
If the media attention was big in Europe, it's nothing compared to how it is here. A year ago, the thought of seeing pictures of my dog inside the UN would have been unthinkable. Now it's nothing strange at all. I see myself everywhere. Just the night before, one of my speeches had been projected onto the facade of the UN building. But luckily, I completely lack an interest in such things. If you would care about this kind of attention, then you'd probably develop a self-image that is far from sane. It's very hard to move inside the giant labyrinth of this building. Presidents, prime ministers, kings and princesses all come up to me to chat. People recognize me and suddenly see their opportunity to get a selfie, which later they can post on their Instagram with the caption, hashtag save the planet. Perhaps it makes them forget the shame of their generation letting all future generations down. I guess maybe it helps them to sleep at night. In the green room, sitting with the other speakers, I try to read through my speech, but I constantly get interrupted by people who want to do small talk and take selfies. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres steps in. We chat for a bit, just like I've learned that you're supposed to do. I fill up my red water bottle and sit down again. Then, it's Chancellor Angela Merkel's turn to come up. Congratulate, take a picture, and ask whether it's okay for her to post it on social media. A queue starts forming. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, waits in line but doesn't quite make it before it's time for the event to start. The annual UN General Assembly Week in New York City is always a big global event. But this year it was a bit extra special since the Secretary General had decided that the focus would be exclusively on the climate. The expectations are huge. It has been promoted as a now or never moment. Almost all of the world's leaders are sitting in the audience, but it's only those with specific so-called solutions who have received an invitation to address the General Assembly. The event begins with a very ambitious digital sound and light show. The volume is way too high. I'm standing by the backdrop covering my ears. We do not accept these odds. That is what the speech was about, if you read it in full. And it of course alludes to our remaining carbon budget. But the only message that seems to have resonated is how dare you? I've never been angry in public. I've barely even been angry at home. But this time, I've decided that I have to make the most out of this speech. To address the United Nations General Assembly is something you probably only get to do once in your lifetime. So this is it. I need to say things I will be able to stand by for the rest of my life so that I won't look back in 60 to 70 years from now and regret that I didn't say enough, that I held back. So I choose to let my emotions take control. On the subway home, I see that many in the car around me are watching the speech on their phones. Some come forward to congratulate me. Someone suggests that 
we should celebrate. But I don't understand what their congratulations are for. And I understand even less what we're supposed to be celebrating. Yet another meeting is over. And all that is left are empty words. Chapter 2. Washington, D.C. Who is the adult in the room? That question has been asked over and over again during the last year. But this question reaches a whole new level when I end up standing in front of the food court in the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Fast food chains, hamburgers, candy and ice cream stores, Dunkin' Donuts, Baskin Robbins, here, you find the most powerful policymakers in the world sitting in their suits while drinking pink milkshake, eating junk food, and candy. In the week leading up to the UN General Assembly meeting, I spend a few days in the nation's capital. I use the opportunity to do the kind of things you can do when in Washington, D.C., like visit museums, protest outside the White House, speak in the United States Congress, and stuff like that. But most of the time, I meet with politicians. It gets a bit repetitive after a while. But in a way, it almost feels like coming home, since politicians are pretty much the same, no matter where you are in the world. I urge them to listen to the science and act now before it's too late. They say that they think it's so amazing that I'm so active and committed and that when I grow up, I too can become a politician and make a real difference in the world. I then explain that when I've grown up and finished my education, it will be too late to act if we are to stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius or even 2 degrees Celsius target. After that, I talk through some of the figures and numbers from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, 1.5 degrees Celsius report. Then they laugh nervously and start talking about something else. A group of maybe 20 young climate activists gather inside the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's office. Our group mostly consists of representatives from indigenous peoples in North and South America, from First Nation tribes and the Amazon rainforest. On the wall hangs a big portrait of Abraham Lincoln. The atmosphere during the meeting is awkward at best. It is as if two entirely different worlds collide. Worlds separated by hundreds of years of injustices, structural and systemic racism, oppression and genocide. At last, a young activist asks to speak. Her name is Dakota Iron Eyes, and she lives in Pine Ridge, an Indian reservation in South Dakota, one of the poorest and most socially vulnerable communities in the entire United States. How do you think it feels for us to sit here in this room with that man looking down from that painting? She says and points to Abraham Lincoln. Speaker Pelosi apologizes if anyone has been offended, but explains that he was a great man who has meant so much for their country. He wanted my people dead, Dakota says. She's referring to the executions of Dakota Indians ordered by Lincoln in 1862. To sit here in this room with that painting, it's just 
So difficult, she says. I try to picture things from her perspective. We fight for climate justice, but how can any justice be achieved when the social and racial injustices have never been officially acknowledged in the public eye in so many parts of the world? That same day, I'm called to testify in the US Congress, but it just feels wrong. What am I supposed to do or say there? I want the people in power to listen to the science, not to me. But after a lot of hesitation and consideration, I figured out a way. I asked whether I could borrow a computer. I print out a copy of the IPCC's one and a half Celsius degree report. I was ready to submit my testimony. Afterwards, I take the metro to Tenley Town and walk the 45-minute stroll to the house we've borrowed. The walk stretches through some of the most beautiful neighborhoods you can possibly imagine. Every house is like a miniature castle straight out of a fairy tale. Outside one of the biggest houses, there's a woman standing with her daughter, who is around the age of five. It's you, the mother says when she sees me. Can I take a picture of you together with my daughter? Of course, I answer. When I walk away, she turns facing the girl. Greta is a climate activist, she explains. Maybe you'll also become an activist when you grow up. The mother says it in a way that makes climate activists appear as the most noble, cool thing in the world, like a mix between a ballerina, a president, and an astronaut. Chapter 3. The Science My message is, and always has been, listen to the science. Listen to the scientists. Which scientists? You could of course argue. Within all scientific fields, there's a constant and never-ending debate. That's what science is about. And climate crisis deniers and delayers love this angle. To spread doubt about whether there's actually consensus on the scientific grounds of the climate crisis. That argument can be used in almost all other issues, but it's no longer possible to use here. The time for that has passed. The consensus is overwhelming. The debate around the global adoption and acceptance of the Paris Agreement and the IPCC reports is over. So what do those two things actually mean? In Paris, the world's governments committed themselves to keeping the global temperature rise to well below 2 degrees Celsius. But in the latest update from the IPCC, the SR 1.5 report, scientists underline that 2 degrees Celsius is not a safe level. We have today already passed about 1.2 degrees Celsius of global heating and in their report, they instead stress the importance of limiting the warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that is to give us the best possible chance to avoid passing so-called tipping points and start irreversible chain reactions beyond human control. So where do we start? Well, I'd suggest that we do precisely what all the world's governments have committed to do in the Paris Agreement, which is to follow the current best available science. And that, among other places, we find on page 108, 
Chapter 2 in the IPCC's SR 1.5 report. Right there, it says that on January 1st, 2018, we had 420 GT CO2 left to emit globally to have a 66% chance of staying below the 1.5 degree target. We emit about 42 GT CO2 every year, including land use such as forestry and agriculture. So today, we're soon already down to lower than 300 GT of CO2 left to emit. That is the equivalent of less than 7.5 years of today's business-as-usual emissions until that budget completely runs out. This is the carbon budget which gives us the best odds to achieve the 1.5 degree target. Yes, you heard it right, less than seven and a half years. Do you remember the London Olympics, Ganem style, or the first Hunger Games movie? Those things all happened about seven or eight years ago. That's the amount of time we are talking about. But even these figures are very watered down. They include almost no tipping points or feedback loops, nor the global aspect of equity in the Paris Agreement, nor already locked-in warming hidden by toxic air pollution. Most IPCC scenarios also assume that future generations will be able to suck hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere with technologies that don't exist on the scale required and that very likely never will in time. I will try to explain more about what these aspects mean later on, but if you read between the lines, you'll realize that we are facing the need to make changes which are unprecedented in human history. One reason why the climate and ecological crisis is so hard to communicate is that there's no magical date when everything is beyond saving. You cannot predict how many people's lives will be lost or exactly how our societies will be affected. There are, of course, countless estimations and calculations which predict what could happen, one more catastrophic than the other. But they almost exclusively focus on a very limited area and almost never take into account the whole picture. We therefore must learn to read between the lines just like in any other emergency. But these are at least the basics. Even if these figures are way too generous, they are still the most reliable roadmap available today. They are what we should be referring to, and the fact that the responsibility to communicate them falls on me and other children should be seen for exactly what it is, a failure beyond all imagination. Chapter 4 Road Trip Three days after my speech in the UN, I leave New York City. The last few days, everything got a bit too much with all the people and the tension. It feels like a huge relief to move out of the house on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and say goodbye to our host for the last month. I've taken a sabbatical year from school to be able to travel to Santiago de Chile, where the UN's yearly climate conference, the COP25, is going to be held. 
I have no idea how to get there. All I know is that, in order to reach Santiago in time, I've got to get to Los Angeles by November 1st. So now awaits five weeks of constant traveling. My dad and I leave Manhattan behind us and drive north in an electric car that we've borrowed from Arnold Schwarzenegger. We travel through spectacular landscapes, past mountains, ravines, glaciers, prairies, deserts, swamps. We see the autumn-colored leaves of New England, the forests of Quebec, the lakes in Minnesota, buffalo herds in Wyoming, the redwood trees in Oregon, red rock formations in Arizona, and the cotton fields of Alabama. We switch between the radio stations. The choices are almost only Christian pop and country music. Most of the time, it's just the two of us, but sometimes we are accompanied by journalists or people we know. Every Friday, I continue to strike wherever I find myself to be at the moment. Denver, Iowa City, Charlotte, Rapid City, Edmonton, Vancouver, Los Angeles. Everywhere, lots of people show up, people of all ages, but nothing beats Montreal, where half a million people came out on the streets. In South Dakota, we are stopped by a policeman. He looks just like a caricature from an American movie with mirrored shades, cowboy hat, and all. He asks us where we are going. I say Santiago. Then he asks if we've got any large amounts of dollars, weapons, or dead bodies in the car. We answer no and continue across the Missouri River over the prairies, the badlands, and the Rocky Mountains. While the car is charging, we walk around the alleys of small towns, shopping malls, suburbs, petrol stations, farms, industrial and residential areas. Wherever I go, people come up to talk and take selfies. We wake up at 7 a.m. and drive until we get tired in the evening. We buy food wherever there's food to buy, but it's not that easy when you're on the road and you're vegan. It ends up being mostly canned foods, beans, french fries, bananas, and bread. During the nights, we either sleep in motels or with people who open up their homes. Activists, scientists, authors, doctors, journalists, hippies, diplomats, movie stars, lawyers. We travel through 37 states in total. Every state has got a slogan on the car's license plates, but I make up my own. Like for instance, North Carolina, where not even the vegetarian salad bars have vegetarian options. Alabama, where the sunsets are pretty and the Christmas decorations are early. Through the car window, I can see the never-ending coal trains in Nebraska and Montana, the oil wells in Colorado and California, abandoned factories in Indiana and Pennsylvania, 16 lane highways, endless parking lots and shopping malls. Shopping malls, shopping malls. Through the tiny vents of big livestock trucks, I look into the eyes of cows and pigs on their way to the slaughterhouses. I'm stunned by the economic differences and social injustices, which in many ways are an affront to all forms of human decency. I'm outraged by the oppression targeting especially indigenous, black, and Hispanic communities.
Every 20 minutes or so, we pass fields where seemingly endless amounts of brand new RVs, motorboats, quad bikes, and tractors are lined up for sale. Along the highways, you see giant billboards with anti-abortion, anti-evolution, and anti-science campaigns. At nighttime, the sky is lit by countless oil refineries sparkling in the dark, from north to south, from coast to coast. Apart from a few wind power plants and solar panels, there are no signs whatsoever of sustainable transition, despite this being the richest country in the world. The debate is far behind Europe. We're discussing free public transport and circular economy. Here, they don't even have public health care or pavements for pedestrians to walk on. In a petrol station in Texas, I count to over 40 different kinds of coffee. I try to add up the number of different sorts of soft drinks as well, but I lose count around 200. An older man in a cowboy hat comes up to me. I'm a big fan, he says, before he walks across the parking lot, steps inside his giant pickup truck, and drives on down the highway. Chapter 5 the Beetle. The only place that anyone has ever discouraged me from visiting is Alberta, Canada. The state of Alberta is one of the Western world's largest oil producers, and its main claim to fame is probably being home to the tar sands. The tar sands are an area bigger than the whole of England, where oil companies have spent the last 60 years extracting oil straight from the soil, a process with an enormous ecological footprint. Alberta has a very powerful and highly criticized oil lobby that is well known for its harsh methods to silence anyone they consider a threat to their industry. And I'm definitely considered a threat to them. On several occasions, I need to call for police protection when the level of threats and the sheer harassments become too serious. On the morning of October 21st, I'm traveling through the spectacular Canadian landscapes with a film crew from the BBC, heading for the Jasper National Park. Magnificent pine forests stretching out as far as the eye can see. It reminds me of home, except for the fact that many trees here aren't green. Their needles are either brown or have been lost entirely. It looks very strange. I assume they must be American larch trees, since those trees lose their needles in the autumn. No, unfortunately, those aren't larch trees, says the biologist Brenda Shepard as she walks me around the national park. She shakes her head as she approaches one of the brown pine trees and points to a hole through the bark. Though the hole seeps something that looks like solidified resin. Here you can see how the tree has tried to defend itself, she says, but it's useless. It will soon be dead. How many trees in this area would you say are affected? I ask. About 50%. I can't seem to get my head around what she just said. 50%? Somewhere around there, she says. 
The term tipping point can be hard to understand, but this is the most clear and obvious example that I have come across myself. The mountain pine beetle exists across the North American continent. Every winter, the temperature here drops to very low levels, much colder than in Sweden, for instance. And since only a very small percentage of this species survives in that temperature for a certain number of days, this has never been a problem in the past. But in the last few decades, this area has seen a significant level of heating. Canada, as well as other countries close to the poles, has seen a rate of warming about twice as fast as the rest of the world. So, the temperature rises and all of a sudden we find ourselves on the other side of an invisible border. Suddenly, almost the entire population of this beetle survives the winter. And we have passed a tipping point, a point of no return, which releases several so-called feedback loops self-reinforcing, often irreversible, chain reactions. And since the local ecosystem completely lacks the ability to adjust to the new reality, the consequences become extremely visible. Tree after tree is attacked by the mountain pine beetle and dies shortly thereafter. Needless to say, the effects on the local environment are disastrous. But unfortunately, what happens in the Canadian Rockies doesn't stay in the Canadian Rockies. These mechanisms are global. Chapter 6. Tipping Points The day after my encounter with the mountain pine beetle, we have an appointment with the glaciologist John Pomeroy. His team of researchers from the University of Saskatchewan has offered to bring me up onto the Athabasca Glacier. Along the walk leading up to the glacier there are signs placed out by the side of the pathway. Every sign marks a certain year. John stops and points at one that says 1982. That means that this is where the glacier began in that year. It looks quite strange as there is no sight of any nearby glacier whatsoever. It was around that time I started working here, he continues. Since then, I've watched with my own eyes how the glacier has disappeared, meter by meter. Due to global heating, the Athabasca Glacier has, in the last 125 years, retreated 1.5 kilometers and lost half its volume. According to the latest estimates, it's currently withdrawing five meters every year. I was instructed to wear every piece of warm clothing that I have, since catabatic winds, winds that form over glaciers, can be ruthless. And they weren't exaggerating. Once we stepped onto the ice, it gets almost impossible to move forward, let alone to stand up straight. There's a heavy snowfall passing by reminding us that the full force of the long Canadian winter is about to arrive any day now. We struggle on in our borrowed boots using ski poles to support our balance and weight. When we reach a place John considers good enough, he stops, takes off his backpack, and starts unpacking his gear. He takes measurements while explaining the procedures step by step. 
Then he starts chipping into the ice. He breaks off a piece and gives it to me. If you look carefully, you see it's full of small black dots. That's soot, he says. Where does the soot come from? I ask. It's from the wildfires that burn here every year. The woods lose a lot of their resilience to the fires as there are so many dead trees all over the forest that become like firewood. I realize he's referring to the trees I saw yesterday. When there's this much soot, then the entire glacier turns gray, he continues. And since a dark surface absorbs more heat than a white one, it means the glacier will melt even faster. It's a feedback loop, a part of the chain reaction. I ask whether this glacier can be saved or not. He shakes his head. No. This one has already passed its tipping point, and there's nothing we can do. We estimate that it, along with countless other glaciers, will be gone completely within this century. The world's glaciers are called the third polar ice cap. Imagine all the people that depend on these glaciers as their source of drinking water. And as if that wasn't enough, we have now gotten used to and built our infrastructure around a very high water flow since the melting process obviously has been way higher than it normally is. That will make it even harder for us to adjust when it starts to run dry. How many people are relying on the glaciers in this area for their drinking water? I ask. The entire Western North America, he replies. But the same process is happening all over the world the Andes, the Alps, and above all in Asia, where up to two billion people depend on the natural melting process of glaciers in Himalaya for their very survival. So, in short, the temperature increases. The damaging mountain pine beetle survives the winter and dramatically increases in population. The trees die and turn into wildfire fuel which intensifies the wildfires even further. The soot from those fires makes the surface of the glaciers turn darker and the melting process speeds up even faster. This is a textbook example of a reinforcing chain reaction, which in itself is just a small part of a much larger holistic pattern connected to our emissions of greenhouse gases. There are countless other tipping points and chain reactions. Some have not yet happened, and some are very much a reality already today, such as the release of methane due to thawing permafrost or other phenomena linked to deforestation, dying coral reefs, weakening or changing ocean currents, algae growing on the Antarctic ice, increasing ocean temperatures, changes in monsoon patterns, and so on. Another overlooked factor is the already built-in additional warming hidden by life-threatening air pollution. This means that once we stop burning fossil fuels, 
we can expect to see an already locked-in warming, perhaps as high as 0.5 to 1.1 degrees Celsius. It's all a part of an infinite chain of events that constantly trigger and create new events, and new events, and new events. There just doesn't seem to be an end. Chapter 7. Paradise. The wall is completely covered by posters. Each one contains a photo of an animal. Dogs, cats, bunnies. On each and every one, there is a big headline that spells out the word missing. A handful has found handwritten across the picture, but the vast majority remain missing. The wall belongs to the local primary school in the town of Paradise, California. On November 8, 2018, Paradise was almost completely destroyed by a devastating wildfire. The pictures on the school wall represent all the pets that went missing in the fire. This wall became a place where the owners collectively displayed their last hope of finding their pets alive. But needless to say, most of the animals remain missing. The fire in paradise destroyed almost 19,000 buildings. 85 people lost their lives, if you exclude other causes of death after the fire. Before the fire, 27,000 people lived in paradise. Today, that number is down to around 2,000. The town became a symbol of how climate breakdown is affecting us in the global north already today. California has always had a natural fire season, just like Australia, Brazil, and many other places. But over recent years, that season has grown considerably longer, and the fires have become more frequent and devastating. Higher temperatures, less rainfall, and stronger winds are some of the changing factors that together make up for a deadly combination when it comes to wildfires. Walking around in paradise is almost like being in a ghost town. I'm here with the BBC to talk to one of the survivors of the 2018 fire. He guides us around the area that used to be his neighborhood. He points at empty spaces and tells us what used to be there. Houses and gardens and the lush, green outskirts of town. That was a car, he says, and points to a lump of metal lying on a burnt-out driveway. The temperature in the fire sometimes got so high that cars started to melt. Suddenly he stops. This used to be my house. He looks at an open field as if there still was a house standing there. It's almost as if he's hallucinating since all that is left is a mailbox and the remains of power lines and sewage pipes sticking out of the red soil. The fact that the climate crisis is already affecting people today is hardly something new. Even though it would sometimes seem like it, judging by the ongoing discourse. We often hear that we need to act for the sake of our children, that the future living conditions will get significantly worsened unless we act now. And that is of course true. 
But it seems like we keep forgetting that large numbers of people around the world are dying already today. And when I say that, I'm not primarily talking about in places like California. The ones who are and will be hit the hardest are the same as in most other crises. The poorest and the most vulnerable. Those who are already suffering from other injustices. Namely, people in developing countries and above all, women and children. Since they are the ones with the least resources, living in the most vulnerable parts of the global society. The UN predicts that by the year 2050, there will be up to 1 billion climate refugees in the world. I wonder, what will it take for us to start facing these issues and begin to ask uncomfortable questions? In Sweden, we live our lives as if we had 4.2 planet Earths. Our annual carbon footprint is approximately 11 tons of CO2 per person, if we include consumption. That can be compared to India's 1.7 tons per capita, or Kenya's 0.3 tons. On average, the CO2 emissions from one single Swede annually is the equivalent of 110 people from Mali in West Africa. So if there is any truth to the claim popular in Western societies that, quote, there are too many people in the world, then wouldn't that only refer to ourselves living extremely high carbon lifestyles in the global north? And not the vast majority of the global population who are already living within the planetary boundaries. But my experience from all such arguments is that they are only used to seek further excuses to go on living the unsustainable life that we consider to be our right. The climate and sustainability crisis is not a fair crisis. The ones who will be hit hardest from its consequences are often the ones who have done the least to cause the problem in the first place. The global aspect of, of equity and climate justice make up the very heart of the Paris Agreement. Developed countries have signed up to lead the way. And this is so that people in developing countries can have a chance to raise their living standards and to build some of the infrastructure that we in the industrialized world already have, such as roads, hospitals, schools, electricity, sewage systems, and clean drinking water. After a visit to paradise, we get back in the car and head towards the coast. We have been offered a stay for the night in a small house in a vineyard. But suddenly, the phone rings, and we find out that the entire vineyard has burnt to the ground in the wildfires currently raging through the California wine districts. We drive on towards San Francisco, as the evening falls, the night sky turns red and you can feel the smoke from the fires in your nose. Chapter 8. Media. Wait, let me just record the interview. The journalist grabs his iPhone out of the pocket of his way too thin coat. It is a cloudy, freezing day on Minterjet 
in the old town of central Stockholm. But just like any other Friday, a few dozen others and I have gathered here to stand outside and protest in front of the Swedish parliament. It does get a bit chilly standing there for seven hours straight in a few windy degrees below zero. He presses record and holds up the phone towards me. So, why are you striking? He asks. I'm striking for us to take the climate crisis seriously and treat it like a crisis. Yes, but what do you want the politicians to do? I want them to listen to and act on the science. Do what they have promised to do in the Paris Agreement and treat the crises like a crisis. I can tell that I haven't given him the answers he wanted. Yes, but what specifically? When I then start talking about carbon budgets, he gives up and interrupts. He knows very well he won't be able to use anything of what I'm now saying in his article. People want something simple and concrete, and they want me to be naive, angry, childish, and emotional. That is a story that sells and creates the most clicks. But, uh, he continues, how are we going to solve this climate issue? Just the fact that this question is asked to me, a teenager, over and over is absurd. But not as absurd as the fact that the climate and ecological emergency is being reduced to a problem that needs to be fixed. That it is seen as an important topic among other important topics. Of course, I don't know how we are going to solve the climate crisis. The fact is that no one knows. There's no magic invention or political plan that will solve everything. Because how do you solve a crisis? How do you solve a war? How do you solve a pandemic without a vaccine? The only way is to treat the climate crisis like you would treat any other crisis. To come together, gather all the experts, put other things aside and adapt to the new reality, to act as quickly and strongly as a situation allows. It, for instance, there's no vaccine available for a disease, you invest all possible resources into developing one as soon as possible, while at the same time taking all other possible measures as well. In a crisis, you act even if you don't know exactly how you are going to solve the problem. In a crisis, there's no time to wait for specific answers and details because the answers have to be found along the way. In a crisis, you need to put all cards on the table and think long-term and holistically. The climate crisis doesn't have a vaccine. We have to admit that we don't know how we are going to solve it. Because if we would have known, then it wouldn't have been a crisis in the first place. There are many who claim that people understand but repress the full meaning of the climate crisis because the message is too depressing and difficult to handle. That would mean that we continue to do what we do, 
despite being fully aware of the devastating consequences of our actions. But that I refuse to believe, since this would mean that we humans are evil. My experience, however, is that people understand much less about the climate crisis than you'd think. If there's anything I've learned from traveling around the world, it is that the level of knowledge and awareness is close to non-existent. I've met many of the most powerful people in the world, and even among them, pretty much everyone lacks even some of the most basic knowledge. So if people are not aware, who is guilty for the message not getting through? The reporter on Minterjet is running out of time. He knows his phone's battery won't last much longer in the cold. But who really is Greta? He asks. I think people want to know Greta. I'm not important, I answer. This has got nothing to do with me. I'm completely uninteresting. I'm not doing this because I want to be famous or popular or get followers on social media. I'm doing this simply because no one else is doing anything. Chapter 9, Crossing the Atlantic It's 6 o'clock in the morning on November 13th, 2019. The TV monitors in the hotel lobby in Hampton, Virginia are showing weather warnings on repeat. Giant storm patterns are raging along the entire North American East Coast, from Florida to Nova Scotia. We step inside the car with the tiny luggage we've got left. It's pitch black outside and the car is still freezing. Rob Liddell, a documentarian with the BBC and sailor Nikki Henderson are sitting in the back. Nikki scrolls through the latest weather updates on her phone. Rob has got the camera on his shoulder and is looking at us through the lens. It's dead silent in the car. The only thing you hear is Nikki sighing and moaning over and over again. After what feels like an eternity, she shakes her head, puts down the phone and goes, wow guys, we're in for a rough ride. But we're still going, right? My dad asks, a bit worried. Of course, she says. Rob tries to ask me questions to get some kind of interview going, but I'm not really in the right mood. One hour later, we cast off from the dock. We clear the harbor entrance heading for Chesapeake Bay and wave goodbye to all the people and TV crews who have gathered on the surrounding docks. There's a strong wind coming from northwest. On deck, the freezing temperatures of last night have turned all puddles into thick layers of ice. It's snowing. We set sail and head for the open sea towards the lighthouse, towards the ocean, towards Europe, towards Portugal, towards Stockholm Central Station. You do not sail across the North Atlantic Ocean in November. At the end of September, the storms come and then the season closes until spring. Of course, I had not planned for it to be like this, but the UN COP25 summit where I was headed was suddenly moved from Santiago to Madrid, 
meaning I had traveled halfway across the globe in the wrong direction. I had to find a solution. I consider every possible option. Zeppelin airships, solar-powered airplane, and even sailing across the Pacific Ocean and then taking the Trans-Siberian Railway home. The most likely outcome, however, is to stay home somewhere in North America for the winter. Hundreds of people get in touch and want to help, but very few actually have something concrete to offer. The French and Spanish governments reach out and assure that they are going to help me find a way. However, it is very unclear how they will do that. Two Nordic Airlines email an offer to arrange a flight using 50% sustainable fuel and then use the remaining 50% on another flight so that in total it becomes 100% fossil free. As if biofuels were sustainable. If I wouldn't have been who I am, I would probably have hitched a ride on a cargo ship since they, unlike airplanes and cruise ships, don't depend on paying passengers. But everything I do and say gets altered and turned upside down, which leads to mockery, conspiracy theories, and organized hate campaigns, which in turn leads to death threats towards me and my family. And that buildup of hate and threat is much riskier than all the storms in the world. Then suddenly, one night, in a hotel room in Savannah, Georgia, the phone beeps. It is Riley and Elena, a couple of young Australian YouTubers who are reaching out. They are living on their catamaran with their one-year-old son, Lenny, and are sailing around the world with no planned route. They offer to take us to Europe. On the boat, we steer south so that in a certain amount of time, we will have put ourselves in a strategically safe position away from a storm so that we later can safely get to another position to avoid the next big storm and then the next one and the next one and the next one. The low pressure systems sweeping over the North Atlantic right now are enormous. During the days, we have gusts reaching up to 60 knots and some nights the electric storms are so immense that you can see sparks in the water. We store all electronic devices in the oven to avoid them getting destroyed by lightning. We are completely in the hands of the meteorologists helping us, setting weather updates and recommendations a few times a day. We are very lucky to also have Nikki, a professional sailor, on board. 100 nautical miles in the wrong position can be the difference between life and death this time of year with this boat. You simply have to blindly trust data and the experts. Me, my dad, Nikki, Elena, Riley, and Lenny are alone in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We are at the mercy of nature and have to act accordingly. We need to be able to take care of ourselves if something goes wrong. If you are one week away from the nearest harbor, you do not take any unnecessary risks. You don't, for instance, start a fire on deck if you feel cold. You don't throw away limited provisions of food or necessary equipment out into the ocean. You keep a constant, watchful eye on the horizon, and you don't allow yourself to be struck by hubris. On board, we are guided by common sense. 
the same common sense that should exist everywhere. We are a civilization isolated in the middle of the universe. Space is our ocean and the planet is our boat, our one and only boat. Chapter 10, Greenwashing. So what should we do to avoid a climate disaster beyond human control? That is the question of our time. It is being asked by people all across the political spectrum, from all over the world. But what if the question, to a great extent, has been phrased the wrong way? What if it should rather be, what should we stop doing to avoid a climate disaster? This year, 2020, the emission curve must be bent steeply downwards if we are to still have even a small chance of achieving the goals world leaders have agreed to. And then it's of course not going to be enough with a temporary and coincidental reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, where the purpose has been to stop a pandemic. A common misconception about the climate crisis is that people think we need to reduce our emissions. But the fact is that if we are to keep the promise of the Paris Agreement, a reduction won't be enough. We then need to reach a full stop of emissions within a couple of decades and then quickly move on to negative figures. There are generally three ways of reducing emissions, apart from the most obvious. To replace current fossil energy with the renewables, such as solar and wind. Number one is technical solutions. Techniques where you capture and store CO2 at the emitting source or directly out of the air. The problem here, however, is that the emissions need to drastically reduce now, and these techniques won't exist at even close to scale in the foreseeable future. These plants are still prototypes. Believe me, I've myself visited to two of the leading facilities in the world. The second alternative is to use nature's own ability to absorb and store carbon, which today often gets mistaken for only planting trees. Despite the fact that the most efficient way, most often, is to just leave the forests and natural habitats be in the first place, a forest area the size of a football field is being cut down every second, according to Global Forest Watch. That is every second of every hour of every day. No tree planting in the world could compensate for that. And even if we miraculously decide to shut down the entire forestry industry and use all the available space in the world to plant trees, that still would only compensate for a few years emissions at current rates. The third option is the only method that is available at scale already today. And that is to simply stop doing certain things. But it is also the alternative which people seem to find the most unrealistic. Just the thought of us being in a crisis that we cannot buy, build, or invest our way out of seems to create some kind of collective mental short circuit. 
Then there's, of course, a fourth way of doing it. And this is the procedure that undoubtedly has been the most successful one so far when it comes to reducing emissions. And it is so-called creative accounting. To simply refrain from reporting the emissions or move them somewhere else. To systematically sweep things under the carpet, lie, and blame someone else. My own country, Sweden, is a textbook example. In our case, this strategy means that over half our emissions simply don't exist on paper. Year after year, people in power are allowed to appear in the media unchallenged and claim that Sweden's emissions of greenhouse gases have decreased 20 to 30 percent since 1990. But the truth is that they haven't decreased at all. If you include consumption and international aviation and shipping, and obviously the statistics will look much better if you simply choose not to count everything. But this is not unique to Sweden. The same approach is being used by pretty much everyone in the richer part of the world. Whether it be the EU, individual countries, states, cities, or companies. We have simply moved our factories to different parts of the world where the labor is cheaper. And by doing so, we also moved a significant part of our emissions overseas. And of course, this is a very convenient solution for the global north. But since the biosphere doesn't care about neither borders or empty words, it doesn't work as well in reality. But the real problem is that when it comes to the climate and ecological emergency, the people in power can today say basically whatever they want. They are practically guaranteed to not receive any follow-up questions. The issue of nuclear power is still, for example, allowed to dominate the entire climate debate, even though science has concluded that it can, at best, only be a very risky, expensive, and small part of a much larger holistic solution. You can claim that we can achieve impossible results through so-called green investments without having to explain how it will be done or what the term green even means. Words like green, sustainable, net zero, environmentally friendly, organic, climate neutral, and fossil-free are today so misused and watered down that they have pretty much lost all their meaning. They can imply everything from deforestation to aviation, meat, and car industries. And basically because the general level of public awareness is so low, you can still get away with anything. No one is held accountable. It's like a game. Whoever is best at packaging and selling their message wins. And since the truth is uncomfortable, unpopular, and unprofitable, the truth doesn't stand much of a chance. Moral, truth, long-term, and holistic thinking seem to mean nothing to us. The emperors are naked. Every single one. It turns out our whole society is just one big nudist party.
Chapter 11, Corona Pandemic. Last year, when I visited Davos, I slept in a tent in 18 degrees below zero. This year, the organizer said that for security reasons, I had to stay in a hotel. The night before the conference starts, I catch the flu. So it was quite a relief that I wasn't sleeping in a tent. I have to cancel most scheduled events, which is something I actually don't mind at all since I find social gatherings and meetings that don't lead anywhere mostly just being a waste of time. So my stay is quite relaxing, but today I'm supposed to drag myself out the door for a meeting with the president of Switzerland. After that, I'm going to go public with my plans about traveling to China. I've just received the official invitation to address the World Economic Forum Conference, which will most likely be held in Shenzhen, China, sometime in the beginning of June. Visiting China is something I've wanted to do for a long time, and now it's finally about to happen. That is, if the Chinese government will let me inside the country. But just as I'm about to walk out the door, the Swiss president cancels as she had to immediately go back to Zurich to attend an emergency meeting. Apparently, developments around the new virus discovered in China are causing grave concern. That was my first introduction to the coronavirus crisis. I immediately put my plans of visiting China on hold. It seemed to become less and less possible to travel there sometime this spring. Instead, I start planning to follow up on some other invitations to take the Trans-Siberian Railroad via Vladivostok to South Korea and Japan. But as the situation escalates, I, of course, have to abandon these plans as well. So I use the upcoming weeks to travel around in Europe, continuing to work on the documentary together with the BBC. We visit Yakmak, London, Yorkshire, Zurich, and the European Parliament. I strike in Hamburg, Bristol, and Brussels. It's the beginning of March 2020, and the world is just about to be turned completely upside down. This weekend, there are supposed to be big climate strikes in France, but right here, a tipping point is past. What was unquestionable the week before has now suddenly become unthinkable. In the Fridays for Future movement, we decide to cancel everything without hesitation. People are dying. Many are losing their family members, loved ones, as well as their economic stability. The consequences of this pandemic are catastrophic. A crisis is a crisis. And in a crisis, we all have to take a few steps back and act for the greater good of each other and our society. In a crisis, you adapt and change your behavior. And indeed, this is what the world does at record speed. So what was it that made these global structural changes possible in just a matter of hours? Was it hope and inspiration that made us act so quickly during the corona pandemic? Something that most communication experts and news editors have claimed to be the only way forward to create change. Or was it Perhaps something else. There's nothing positive about the corona crisis from a climate perspective. The changes made in our daily lives due to COVID-19 have extremely little similarity with the action needed for the climate.
The corona tragedy, of course, has no long-term positive effects on the climate, apart from one thing only, namely the insight into how you should perceive and treat an emergency. Because during the corona crisis, we suddenly act with necessary force. International emergency meetings take place on a daily basis. Astronomical financial bailouts magically appear out of nowhere. Cancelled events and tough restrictions make people change their behavior and approach overnight. The media completely transitions, puts other things on hold, and almost exclusively reports about COVID-19, with daily press conferences and live coverage 24-7. All parts of society come together, and politicians put their different views aside and cooperate for the greater good of everyone. Well, maybe not everyone and everywhere. But broadly speaking, people in power from politics, business, and finance are suddenly saying that they will do whatever it takes since you cannot put a price on a human life. Those words and this treatment of the crisis opens up a whole new dimension. Because you see, Every year, at least 7 million people die from illnesses related to air pollution, according to the WHO. Those are apparently people whose lives we can put a price on, since they die from the wrong causes and in the wrong parts of the world. During the corona pandemic, policymakers repeat that we have to listen to the science and the experts. Well, according to the world's leading scientists and experts on biodiversity, the pandemic is likely to be followed by deadlier and more destructive diseases unless we halt the ceaseless destruction of natural habitats. But these are not the scientists and experts they are referring to because long-term sustainability doesn't fit inside today's economic and political systems. Chapter 12, Hope. In the aftermath of the corona crisis, there are many who claim that we need to use this as an opportunity. That when we restart the economy, we must adopt a so-called green recovery plan. And of course, it's incredibly important that we invest our assets in sustainable projects, renewable energy, technical solutions, and research. But we must not, for one second, believe that it will be even close to what is actually required. Or for that matter, that the so-called targets set out today would be ambitious enough. If all countries were to actually go through with the emission reductions they have set as goals, we would still be heading for a catastrophic global temperature rise of at least three to four degrees. The people in power today have thus practically already given up on the possibility of handing over a decent future for coming generations. Given up without even trying. It sounds terrible, I know, but in reality, it is actually even worse because even if they want to act in line with what is needed 
which actually sometimes is the case, they can't. And that is because we are stuck in already written contracts and business agreements. It's just simple math. The United Nations Production Gap Report shows that the world's planned fossil fuel production alone by the year 2030 accounts for 120% more than what would be consistent with the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. It just doesn't add up. So if we are to avoid a climate catastrophe, we have to make it possible to tear up contracts and abandon existing deals and agreements on a scale we can't even begin to imagine today. And that alone requires a whole new way of thinking. Since those type of actions are not politically, economically, or legally possible today, the climate and ecological crisis cannot be solved within today's political and economic systems. That is no longer an option. That's a fact. I understand that all of this sounds uncomfortable and depressing, and I fully get why you, as a politician or news editor, choose to look away. But you must also realize that for us who actually have to live with the consequences for the rest of our lives, that's a luxury we can't afford. Recently, a new scientific report was published by scientists from Uppsala University and the Tyndall Center in the UK. It shows that if rich countries like Sweden and the UK are to fulfill their commitments to the Paris Agreement's well below 2 degrees Celsius target, they need to reduce their total national emissions of CO2 by 12 to 15% every year, starting now. Of course, there's no green recovery plan or deal in the world that alone would be able to achieve such emission cuts. And that's why the whole Green Deal debate ironically risks doing more harm than good, as it sends a signal that the changes needed are possible within today's societies. As if we could somehow solve a crisis without treating it like a crisis. A lot may have happened in the last two years, but the changes and level of awareness required are still nowhere in sight. Things may look dark and hopeless, but I'm telling you, there is hope. And that hope comes from the people, from democracy, from you, from the people who more and more themselves are starting to realize the absurdity of the situation the hope does not come from politics, business, or finance. And that's not because politicians or business people are evil, but because what is needed right now simply seems to be too uncomfortable, unpopular, and unprofitable. Public opinion is what runs the free world. And the public opinion necessary is today non-existent. 
the level of knowledge is too low. But there are signs of change, of awakening. Just take the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, or the school strike movement, for instance. It's all interconnected. We have passed a social tipping point we can no longer look away from what our society has been ignoring for so long. Whether it is sustainability, equality, or justice. From a sustainability point of view, all political and economic systems have failed. But humanity has not yet failed. The climate and ecological emergency is not primarily a political crisis. It is an existential crisis, completely based on scientific facts. The evidence is there. The numbers are there. We cannot get away from that fact. Nature doesn't bargain and you cannot compromise with the laws of physics. And either we accept and understand the reality as it is, or we don't. Either we go on as a civilization, or we don't. Doing our best is no longer good enough. We must now do the seemingly impossible. And that is up to you and me. Because no one else will do it for us. So I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. If you would like to contact Kaylee for any voiceover work, and I suggest you do because she has an extremely high level of professionalism, her perseverance to get this done in a timely manner and in short order was nothing short of the highest of professional grade. And um, she's a natural. You can reach Kaylee at Kaylee Gibson 808 at gmail.com. That's K as in kite, A-Y-L-E-E, Gibson, G-I-B-S-O-N, the number 808 at gmail.com. Kaylee Gibson 808, all one word, at gmail.com. That email will be uh, located in the information on this podcast as well. Thank you.